Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm joined by Steve Vickers, a former police officer and the chief executive of Steve Vickers and Associates, a specialist political and corporate risk consultancy. Steve Vickers came to Hong Kong from Britain in 1975 to join the Royal Hong Kong Police, where he had his first career for 18 years and in later years was the head of the police force's Criminal Intelligence Bureau. In this week's programme, we talk about the Sun Yion, the world's most powerful triad society. Triad crimes back in the 1990s, triad activity in Macau Gaming, and what Broken Tooth is up to. But I started by asking Steve Vickers what he's been working on this week. Currently, well, I've just finished giving expert testimony associated with the Crown Inquiry in, in Australia, which was looking at the licensee and whether or not there were associations with triads and organised crime. From, so this is the from, casinos? Yeah, yeah, which is somewhat interesting, not particularly lucrative from, from our point of view, but I think it makes a... From time to time, you can do something that still makes a, makes a bit of a difference. So we'll see what the final outcome uh, of that is, but it certainly was a, a kind of colourful expose of what's going on. Macau clearly generated vast revenue for organized crime over the last 10 years. The Chinese central government is having a, a major crackdown on capital outflows. Western governments are looking at corruption and issues associated with it. I'm not uh, religiously or emotionally anti-gaming, but there are some harsh realities which I think people need to be, to be alive to. Yeah, at the end, it could be optimistic. It is possible to run gaming without funding organized crime, or at least on the scale that, that has been going on recently. With COVID, how is organised crime funding itself? Well, it's interesting. Uh, bi many businesses have been shut down, so I would say at the lower end of the triad spectrum, takings from restaurants and kickbacks and the rest, protection fees will have suffered. We've seen, for example, narcotics changing, adapting quite quickly in the last few months, people using courier systems and, uh, and others to move drugs into Hong Kong as opposed to human beings and mules. So I guess they've had to adapt as well. Clearly the, those involved in loan sharking, gaming, the unlawful side of it uh, have obviously been impacted fairly heavily. So I think like others in many areas, organized crime has, uh, has had a bit of a downturn in, in 2020 and 2021. You were born and grew up in the UK, a bit of a cold climate, then came to the warmth of Asia in 1975. Indeed. Um, I was born at an early age uh, in, uh, in Liverpool, and I grew up the first part of my life in the Wirral, where I went to school. I did a lot of mountain climbing and things in those days, uh, the Capel Curry Mountain Climbing School and other places, and uh, I discovered it really, really was cold. So somebody said to me, have you tried Hong Kong? It's a bit warmer. And that's basically in a, in a, in a nutshell why I, <laughs> why I gave Hong Kong a go. So you came to, to Hong Kong, liked the warm weather and also obviously liked physical exercise, all of which worked uh, when you joined the Royal Hong Kong Police. Now today, we're not going to look at all aspects of, of your career because you're 18 years with the police and then after. But there are some aspects that I'd really like to talk to you about, which I haven't really covered in the program over the past 22 years. One is triads and the other is uh, the kidnapping of Teddy Wang or the double kidnapping even. So if we start off with triads. For the last five years of my service I, I commanded the Intelligence Bureau, CIB. We had a, a number of bureaus that did different things. We would do strategic operations against triads, so not so dramatic but interesting. So I'd be looking at fish markets and, and other areas to see how much control triads actively have. The public like bus systems in Hong Kong, many people don't realise, but the 
the red PLBs that zoom around town are actively still regulated to a certain extent by, by triad societies. So the history of it, it goes back to the 67 riots and when there were a lot of strikes. Yeah. So the government decided, right, we'll put some extra buses on the road and, and that will deal with the strikers, which was, you know, a classic... Yeah, because the strikers shut the trams down, didn't they? They did all sorts of stuff. And obviously transportation was important. So the PLBs, these private PLBs appeared and that was great, and that sort of filled in the, the gap. Except that everybody wanted to drive from Western to Central, and not too many people wanted to drive to uh, Apley Chow, and there was no regulation. So when there's no regulation, you can guarantee the triad societies will step into the vacuum, and that's why the triads got a grip of the red PLBs. And then each PLB would pay, or each operator would pay a certain amount, so there'd be funny stickers with Mickey Mouse or whatever stuck in the window to indicate that you had contributed appropriately and if somebody else appeared and drove on that route without the appropriate payment then something bad would happen. Oh right, because I regularly take the red minibus from Aberdeen to Moncock. Should I be looking for stickers in the window? I think we're beyond stickers and windows uh, now as the things are actually a lot better than they have been. But you will see old ladies sitting at the corner counting trips and uh, if you look around carefully around PLB bus stops and the rest. And eventually those sheets are all pulled together and someone somewhere will, will be able to tell you that bus number 1234 has made so many trips and whatever is required. What about fish markets? Well, fish markets, again, who can get to the front of the queue, who can distribute? It's all about timeliness, order and access. And if there's insufficient government oversight of that, other people will step in and control it. Not just fish markets, but also vegetable markets and other. Now, again, so to go back to what I used to do, the strategic operations would be simply to understand, boring though, let me read how the fish market works who does what, where, where the money goes, uh, and who gets licenses and how. Uh, and after a while from that, you can, you can form an understanding of triad organization. So one of my divisions would, would do that. And then hopefully we would work with government to change policy to make it more difficult. In those days, we had a thing called a uh, fight crime committee, and we had a, a lot of effort against triad penetration because there was a recognition. Uh, one thing I would say the UK did recognize particularly in the last 15 years in Hong Kong, was the impact of triads and the, the pernicious nature, uh, the cancerous nature of, of triads in our society. Um, I, I watched them destroy the, uh, the movie industry here by all sorts of extortion, control of, of talent, if, that's, if that is the right word, out-and-out triad producers, movie producers, who are indeed major triad figures themselves. And the, the cancerous nature of that did terrible damage to, to Hong Kong, to Hong Kong's indigenous movie industry. Not much discussed, but, but fact. So that's what the strategic group would do. I had a, a very big surveillance group responsible for dealing with, in the 70s and 80s, they, they were the eras of triads uh, became more powerful in the 70s and 80s, ironically, be, because of the activities of ICAC. Um, I am very supportive of ICAC. I actually spent 10 months doing a task force when I first got here, which didn't make me terribly popular with, with others. But the ICAC had an excellent... I mean, I, sort of anti-corruption, so... You, you no, know. It was, I, was on a, I was on a team in, which investigated uh, problems around ICAC um, when the police 
there was a demonstration went wrong and, and um, anyway they wanted some impartial guys um, to do that and from a cast of thousands I was selected from the bottom of the barrel to assist so I spent some time doing that but my point was that A, I see as he did a great job but B, it released decent police officers to get out and really get the, get the job done in doing so, however, a lot of others, people were frightened of getting into trouble, or, 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 so the, the tribes were able to expand and fill in a space which was made for them. And during the 80s uh, and up through the 90s, the tribe activity became a, a real problem. And at the same time, we had firearms coming from China. So it was quite a sporty time to be in. I mean, Hong Kong today is really setting aside our terrible 2019 and 220 with the demonstrations is largely a peaceful place, very few firearms and very few aggressive triad activities. In those days, it was certainly uh, interesting, and the triads were pushing their way into space on the perception that they thought the police had lost a grip. So, you know, it, it evolved. I mean, jumping right to now, I mean, what would you say during the demonstrations and also with the national security law now, what would you say is the position of the triads? I don't think the national security law impacts them particularly, but I have noted since the handover a gradual increase in triad power and, and activity. Look, the thing with triads, you either recognize them as a cancer in our midst or you don't. Some triads paint themselves as patriotic and have done this for, for years and years and years. That is total nonsense. Um, they, they are benefiting what they can, stealing what they can, leveraging influence where they can. My particular job in those days was, when I said intelligence anyway, was to infiltrate, destabilize, and then prosecute triads, the senior ones. Often you get street-level people who are arrested, but they aren't the ones that are the problems. There are people in Hong Kong today, they're well-known. One or two of them run public companies who are quite renowned triad figures. Since the handover, there's been less emphasis on, on, on targeting triads as a threat. Um, the previous Fight Crime Committee did. Uh, we even had a triad renunciation scheme. It afforded people a way out where you could go in, in a judicial environment. You could actually swear an affidavit and having gone, been gone through this process, actually say you're no longer a member of, of a triad society. That's all gone. There needs to be a will. It comes from a recognition that triads are a threat. Currently, this patriotic thing drifts around. It's not really true. Nobody really believes it. But because of that, the, there has been action against triads, but largely only when they do something illegal. My point being, if you wait that long, it's already too late. And the ones that get arrested are typically the, the lower-end soldiers rather than the, um, the serious organisers. So we do have a growing problem with triads in Hong Kong. Interesting, because I mean, for me, I came here in 1993 and I was working for Eastern Express at that time and then the Post. And for me, just as a, you know, journalist observer on when the news stories came out, it was, I mean, some pretty startling stuff. You'd have a lot of chopping attacks. You'd have a guy at five o'clock in the morning outside a hotel and be chopped and left. And, and for me, it was also when I learned the word chopper. Uh, and not stabbing. And so there was this drama going on, and as you say, some of the big armed robberies as well. But I have to say that there's been less and less in, in the press since then. But looking through, I was, I was looking through some Steve Vickers clippings, ah. and uh, I was interested to see, like, Sun Yon, 14K aside, the Sun Yon, at times, in one district court report, 47,000 members estimated. The Sun Yon is by far the most powerful triad society globally. Um, it's organised, 
Uh, it still uses rituals and ceremonies, uh, and it has a tight control over its membership. When you join, you get given a number, like a policeman gets given a number. Uh, the difference with these numbers are there are big gaps for historical and ritual reasons, but if, if one grabs somebody who's recently joined, uh, from their number you can pretty well calculate what the state of play is in terms of membership. Um, the Sanyon means New Righteous Association, uh, with primarily, and with respect to all our Chu Chow listeners, uh, a lot of the members are originally came from Chu Chow. It was formed by a gentleman called Heng Chin, and then he had a number of children and brothers who are still around at the centre of this um, society. Um, so it's not some age-old thing, it's, it's, quite, well, it's within living memory. We, I mean, I don't want to drive everybody nuts, but if we, if we had a wiring diagram, we can take it back <laughs> as far as um, we could take it back to the turn of the century. And then there were, the triad movement obviously goes back for many, many hundreds of years. But anyway, the Sanyon is, is the most cohesive one. For that reason, uh, we targeted it over the years. Again, as I say, primarily our goal was to destabilize, intimidate, to stop them from being too cohesive. One should remember that during World War II, the, the Sanyong collaborated with the Japanese uh, invaders. The old Kaitak airport was partly built by Allied POWs under pressure, assisted by elements of the, of the Sanyong. So, again, part of my routine was also to, to get around Toon Moon, which is one of their, their recruitment areas, and make sure that the school kids knew of their heroic role or, or the opposite during World War II to try and take some of the um, mm. mystique away from them. So the prisoners of war, as you say, had been in slave labour, building the, the runway at Kai Tak, and you're saying that Sanyong was actively supplying enforcing the, that. Supplying materials oh, right, and, okay. and the rest, and also cooperating with the Japanese Kempen Thai. The, 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 the rice trade in Hong Kong during the Second World War, all of us you can read about um, if you dig down a bit, uh, was controlled by them. So if you control the rice trade, you control almost life and death. So during, during those years, they were um, very powerful. And for that reason, the British government formed the opinion that, that we ought to keep our foot on the pedal on these guys. Riots in, in 1956 were heavily tried, influenced. So again, the, the, it was recognised for many years, right to the end, that, that when I say the end, I mean the, um, the handover. I'm sounding a little like a dinosaur here, but uh, it was recognised that triads represent a cogent threat to Hong Kong. And for that reason, we destabilised, infiltrated... Uh, disorganised and, and found ways to, to make their lives more interesting than otherwise. I'm talking with Steve Vickers today on all sorts of things. Uh, very interesting. So we'll be looking at other aspects throughout the programme, but just to, just to stick with that for a moment, so many elements of your career are actually following the money. Um, yes. But when you're saying, you know, uh, but you also, I mean, speak fluent Cantonese, but you're a Caucasian face. So when you're talking about, you know, infiltrating the triads, you would have members of your police force. So, so is that Triad and Crime Bureau or...? Well, I said the last five years I ran Intelligence Bureau of CIB. So without going into sordid details, we would have the ability to run strategic operations, like I said, looking at set-piece areas like public light buses and nightclubs and lights and all that sort of stuff. At a, another level, we, we would have uh, intelligence officers gathering information, um, running agents, so we would put agents inside trial societies. At another level, we might every so often run, carefully run, undercover operations where we would actually put our guys in to a, a target triad society and that these things were very difficult very expensive and very dangerous 
certainly if they go wrong, it could be uh, unfortunate. So those sort of operations were very carefully planned. They require a lot more people than, than a TV would have you believe. Oh, so it's not just the one guy in the sweatshirt? Sadly not. Some of them, some of them want to, you know. Um, no, it, it would require um, psychological evaluation of the people concerned, creating, a, creating an appropriate background for them, considering what's the best way to, to put them in, making sure that, that we're targeted the right, the right guys from the beginning so we're not wasting time and effort running them. Then when they're inside, making sure that they don't get involved in something that's going to put us all in jail because, you know, these guys could be sitting in a restaurant together and some, the big chief comes in and says, right, we're off to chop up someone in a different nightclub. Clearly, we, we, you know, you, you really can't have your guys uh, engaged in that form of activity. Debriefing them in a way that uh, you can extract it from evidence into intel from intelligence into evidence so that we can actually use it later. Working with counsel, so at one point I had my own counsel attached to me from the, the, the legal department, working day by day, week by week, to obtain sufficient material that we could use against people, and then arresting them not one by one or two by two, but arresting them in a, in a sizable, chunky way, which scares them, destabilizes them, and makes, and makes them less, less visible and heroic. So again, it's, it's a battle. It's not a single prosecution. Uh, it's not a single PR campaign. There's no silver bullet. Uh, but the only way to take these guys on is, is relentless pressure, destabilization, hit their sources of, of income as hard as you can, and keep the focus. Lately, I've observed very little crime, I mean street crime, setting aside the demonstrations last year uh, in Hong Kong, which is very positive. What you'll find in organized crime town, I've done a lot of stuff around the world, is a good, a good organized crime town has very little street crime but a lot of stuff going on in the background and we don't want Hong Kong to go back to that so it, it, it's kind of critical that the pressure is maintained. So the triads these days you would say are as powerful as they were back in the 90s? Different things, different, uh, in those days there were a lot of turf wars and, and fights which were visible on the street. As the head of intelligence then my, <laughs> I kind of liked that because I could see what was, what was going on I could see that there was no all powerful group um, that was that was getting things done, although obviously from the newspaper's point of view and the public's point of view, nobody wants to see people bursting out onto the streets doing that. Now things are, are a lot different. Macau has had a big influence on Hong Kong, not not because the the Macanese are running Hong Kong or, or, or whatever, but because the scale, vast expansion of the gaming franchise um, since since 1999. It facilitated, I can only describe, a, a, a massive money operation involving loan sharks and, and others on the edges of the legitimately run casinos. So did that result in the triad activity moving more to Macau than Hong Kong? So triad activity moved to, to, to China and to, to the mainland and to, and to Macau and because, because that's, where the, that's where the money is. And that, that's been interesting. The scale of it is difficult to comprehend. At, at its very height, when, when the casinos were really... At the, uh, I would describe it, um, yabba dabba do time. Uh, <laughs> um, at its very, very high, uh, the official Macau f figures, I think, will show the registered turnover was 43 billion US dollars uh, in Macau for registered gaming through the casinos. But what was going on in the VIP rooms at the same time uh, in these casinos was off book betting 
or side betting or was going on to for, with a multiple of at least six times the, the the registered number. So that money wasn't going through the Macau government in terms of uh, taxation, and it was that money was being bet in these VIP rooms, not with the agreement of the of the casinos, but they're kind of aware that, that this was going on. So the side betting was a massive issue. So that's entirely money laundering, then. Well, it? well it's it's the way the chips work, um, the way the money's come, the way the money is moved from from the mainland, the way people are permitted to bet on credit and to borrow and there, so the whole world the whole sub a sub economy occurred the mainland government got a grip of that they saw the scale of it this was a tidal wave of money uh, moving south and since then obviously there's been economic downturns that we've had now we've had covid but the scale of that was huge and it did facilitate a, a, a bit of a bonanza for organized crime which took the violent stuff maybe uh, off the street which is to answer your question in a, in a long way as to what's been going on. Broken Tooth appeared from prison. I know! Because, I, you know, I, I was just saying, Broken Tooth for me was absolutely in the 90s, and then suddenly I'm seeing him in the paper. So, so he was based in Cambodia or something. Well, so Broken Tooth has uh, now established himself as the president of... Remind me what his real name is. <laughs> Wan Kwok Khoi. Um, well, Broken Tooth is a very colourful Macau character. He's a famous member of the 14K, Macau 14K Triad Society. Broken Tooth was, the, was pretty obviously why he was, why he was called Broken Tooth. He was put in jail as a consequence of his activities just before the, uh, the handover from Macau back to a reversion of sovereignty to the mainland. So that's 1999. Just give me a quick reminder of what he was up to. Well, he led a campaign against all the other all the other organised crime figures. Bombs were let off all over Macau. It was a, a full-on attack on the stability of Macau, which is my point about keeping your foot on tries. If you let them get out too far out of control, these things can happen. He even made his own movie about his success. The police tried to stop him, and he shut off the uh, the main Macau bridge during the course of the making of it. Again. Uh, really nonsense. He went to jail for a long time, but he seemed to have been looked after quite well when he was in prison. His official title, and I, I have the video somewhere, he calls himself the president of the World Hong Moon Society. Hong Moon meaning the uh, the Red Door, which is the uh, derivative of the Hong Fat San, uh, the original triads. So he presides over this between here and Taiwan and Cambodia and Southeast Asia, in addition to running some other business enterprises. Uh, I noticed uh, on, a, on the shelves in Macau recently a can of beer which has Hong Moon written on it. It would appear to be connected to his organisation. So he's now running a craft brewery. Well, amongst many other things. Uh, but, but my point really is not to go too far down the, the chain, but, but triads remain a, a threat. The central government is aware. They didn't mess around when they, unlike in Hong Kong where they, the, the PLA remained in the background, in Macau they marched right into the middle and got a grip of it quite quickly. So the, the money that was made in that boom period in Macau assisted a lot of grey area people. The casinos themselves are run legally and ethically because there's no need, they, the mathematics, the arithmetic does it uh, for the casino. But how the money gets there is a different matter. It's, all, it's illegal to move more than a, a very limited amount of money uh, across the border, yet billions and billions move all the time. It's illegal to raise funds in China for gambling uh, externally, but billions and billions move uh, regularly. Uh, the disclosures during the Crown Casino uh, public inquiry are, are, are indicative of the scale 
uh, of what has been going on. So for all those sort of reasons that, that organised crime has had a good, a good few years uh, and the violence has been um, down and the conflict between the, the groups have been down, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a problem, it's just that we can't see how bad the problem is at the moment. I'm talking today to Steve Vickers, the Chief Executive Officer of Steve Vickers and Associates Limited. So your work these days is sort of specialist risk mitigation. So aside from what you also did in the police, these days you're also working with corporations looking at financial crimes or security. Give me an overview of what you do now. Essentially, I have three divisions. We're entirely corporate. Obviously, we have no powers of investigation other than that we can get through the courts. So we have three divisions. The first is business intelligence and political risk. So we do, at its more mundane, we do due diligence ahead of M&A transactions or ahead of IPO listings in Hong Kong. So there's been quite a few listings that have gone wrong uh, over the years, uh, largely because sponsors have not perhaps dug in as deeply as they might. So have. this is for investors, this you're, is you're for, saying? is yeah. It can either be for um, the sponsors themselves uh, it can be for occasionally for, for regulatory agencies in support of uh, who need some specialist assistance or good old-fashioned due diligence looking around the region. Although we're based in Hong Kong, Hong Kong it, to us is a bit like Airstrip 1, as George Orwell described it. <laughs> uh, when we were based here, but the bulk, we tend to sell the financial work here, but it will be executed on the mainland, Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia, right down as far as Australia. So that's what the first division does, business risk, due diligence. Currently, political risk is a big deal. If you are in a compliance office in a bank, things are getting quite sporty in that the Americans have put sanctions on various individuals politically and made them politically exposed persons per se. The Chinese have their position, which is you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't follow those restrictions. And the bank concern finds themselves... I mean, the bottom line is you have to obey the law and the regulations in the environment in which you find yourself, whatever you may think about it. I mean, that's just how it is in, in reality. There's been a few bad moves made by some of the larger organizations in Hong Kong who haven't seen these difficulties coming. U.S.-China relations are at a very low ebb, uh, so it's a, it's a difficult time for, for a multinational. So that's what my first division does. The second division is something I'm confident we'll always have plenty of business in, which, which is fraud. Um, there's been no outbreak of honesty uh, anywhere we operate uh, last year, this year, and probably in the future. So we, we, we work for typically big financial institutions or big international law firms tracing assets. And this is where perhaps there's been a catastrophic fraud or in cer other circumstances where um, when business is bad or it's bonus time, several hundred agents leave one insurance company in defect to join another and then they try and take with them all the, or to twist all of the policies associated with, uh, that, that they had, clearly to the detriment of the people of Hong Kong, because, as you know, the first three years uh, of commission, the first three years of any payment you make for a policy is gone in commission. So we've worked for big insurance companies trying to prevent that happen. Uh, when it has happened, trying to adduce evidence of fraud or breach of confidentiality agreements, breach of uh, data security breach of insurance regulations, regulatory regulations and the rest, in support of defending uh, the home team, uh, as it were. Good old-fashioned fraud investigations continue uh, almost everywhere. Uh, as the economy suffers, and we are going to suffer this year, uh, as that happens, well, I think you will see a, uh, many more uh, cases of malfeasance 
it often starts with company directors trying their best to keep the, uh, the business afloat, maybe overstating their, uh, their receivables, understating their liabilities. And once you start on that rocky road, uh, you know, the, the end is almost always inevitable. My third division is special risk division. I still do a little kidnapping work. Uh, actually, I try not to. But we work with insurers who have insured uh, typically multinationals uh, who have expatriate people moving around the region. Here, the southern Philippines, Thailand, other places where things can, uh, can go wrong. Uh, and we will hopefully have had a chance to put a plan together and have a basic response teed up in the event of something happening and us needing to, uh, to respond. Some countries we work very closely with the police in. Others we would probably not, um, given them the difficulties that occur in certain Southeast Asian uh, countries. Uh, our goal is simply to recover the victim alive for the minimum possible funds. My thanks to Steve Vickers talking there on the Sun Yon, triad crimes and other aspects. Next week, I'll be talking with Steve about the mysterious and unresolved kidnapping of Teddy Wang, the founder of the China Chem Group and the husband of the colourful businesswoman, Nina Wang. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>